Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is the brilliant Jessica Nordell, author of The End of Bias, A Beginning. We discuss what it would mean to unhook from our automatic programming and what's possible when we think carefully for ourselves. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. Right. Yeah. I mean, the idea that we're colorblind or, or gender blind or age blind or something is, is ridiculous. I mean, we categorize those things within milliseconds when we see one another. It's part of our, you know, our development of our visual processing and our social, our social development. But it's a deep and, and challenging problem, like how we create space between the categorization of one another and the evaluation of one another. I think creating that space is what allows us to open the door to a new way of interacting in a more humane way. So says Jessica Nordell, the award-winning science writer behind The End of Bias, A Beginning, which was the culmination of 15 years of reporting on implicit bias and discrimination in all facets of life. As a frequent contributor to The New York Times, The Atlantic, and The New Republic, Jessica goes beyond delineating all the ways in which our minds unconsciously and automatically filter the world in ways that are harmful to ourselves and others to uncover successful interventions. She details in a stunning way the people, companies, and cultures that have managed to undo unconscious bias and build something more true and beautiful in its place. Whether it's the way schools assess gifted students, how policing is done in communities, or undoing the long-term and insidious effects of gender discrimination in the workplace. Jessica has a degree in physics from Harvard and a degree in poetry from the University of Wisconsin, which underlines the rarity of her mind and her ability to perceive nuance and complexity. Her book is one that promises healing, and I recommend it to everyone. Meanwhile, this is a fun fact. Jessica is a direct descendant of the last woman to be tried for witchcraft in the state of Massachusetts. I'd be happy to be in her coven any day. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Congratulations on your beautiful, incredibly well-researched book. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm very honored. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, turning to to the end of bias this aversion that we have for acknowledging or recognizing our own biases in part because I can't remember who you were quoting who was talking about sort of the whiteism of that but I think it's a, a very also a very female instinct to be like but I'm a good person it's like we cling to that goodness that desire to help and fix yes and it is so freaky to recognize that despite your best intentions or your quote-unquote moral code it's part of life to behave in ways that are harmful to other people. And putting that down, that like belief in goodness or clinging to that idea of goodness is so hard. And yet, where did those ideas of goodness even come from? It's so hard. I mean, I think that one of the one of the hardest parts about kind of entering into the work of tackling one's own bias is the fact that it is so painful to see 
you know, the, the, the ways that one is harming others without realizing it. But I feel like there, there's a silver lining to it too, which is that once you start to see it, like once I started to see the ways that I was reacting in biased ways toward women, toward people of color, toward all the stigmatized groups in our society that we learn, you know, that we learn biases about. Once I started to see it, it was like the first step of agency. It, it was like um, stepping into freedom because when you see it, then you can actually do something about it. And before you see it, you're just, you're, you're just sort of beholden, you know, to these, these unexamined patterns and and you don't even know you're doing them so so you're not free at all is what what yeah. i found what i think is and and where it's interesting like in terms of bias too it's not only against marginalized people but i also i loved sort of the, the wide breadth of examples and communities that you explored particularly when you were talking about watts and policing too because i have a lot of bias against police officers i have a lot of bias against white men who look a certain way. And again, we can argue like they're not the ones necessarily who need my protection or my empathy to quote Kate Mann. But it's <laughs> true. Like this all cut, it cuts in all directions. So I think for anyone who's sort of allergic to this conversation or feels like they're tired of it, it applies to everyone that we encounter in our, in our lives, mm-hmm. really. Right? Yeah. I mean, the basic sort of like the basic mechanism of bias applies to like every category of person that we encounter. So we grow up in a culture, we learn that certain categories are salient in that culture because of our experiences. And then we store associations and stereotypes about those groups in our memory. And then when we encounter a person in one of those groups that we, I I realize is part of a category that we know, then all of those associations and stereotypes and beliefs and memories start to come into play and start to affect the way that we interact with a person. And so, you know, what I've, the way I've sort of come to to think about it is that we so much of the time are not even interacting with a person. We're interacting with a daydream or a Mm. hallucination and not an actual individual. Yeah. No, I, you had sort of this a beautiful way of sort of distilling it where you talk about essentially how it's habit, right? Like you're you're exercising a habit the way that we would drive somewhere and not really be conscious. I mean, it's, everyone has that experience of suddenly you're at work and you're like, I don't even remember getting in the car. And yet you were driving a massive vehicle at, at high speeds. So it's that auto, the way that we auto engage with life and shortcut decision making without even being aware of what we're doing, right? Right. It's letting our, the pattern forming parts of our brains run our lives. Right, right. Which is one of the reasons that when I was looking into approaches to interrupt this habit, like the reason that I wrote the book was I really had this question, like, what do we do about this problem of bias and discrimination? And what you're describing is one of the reasons that mindful self-awareness can be helpful in interrupting the pattern because instead of just operating on autopilot, it allows us to start to see what's happening in our own minds while it's happening. And then when you start to see it, then you can make a new decision. You know, you can decide to do something different. Yeah. And that was the the one who was running workshops. Oh, Trish Devine. Trish Devine. Was Devine. Doing, yes. So was she, was that the loving meditation process where it was just actually making or or the way that she would gently coach people because there's a lot of and you cite much of this research but there's research too that I was talking about this with Celeste Headley actually about people who voted for Obama then go on to exhibit more bias and and more racist behavior in part because like in our aspiration to be good and to check things off a list we are like, oh, I could never be racist because I have these values. And by stating these values, I'm done. Like, I'm good, right? And so confronting people about that is very tricky and difficult work. And so she – and her, can you take us through her workshop process? Because she really does it quite artfully. Yeah. So there, there, are, there are a lot of different approaches that have been shown to – change people's behavior in measurable ways so that they act 
in more fair and just ways and less discriminatory ways. And, and one of them is this approach that was developed at the University of Wisconsin, which basically looks at bias as a, a habit that needs to be interrupted. And so the approach that they've developed is based on cognitive behavior therapy, actually. And so it has like the components of CBT, which are awareness, developing that there's awareness of a problem, motivation, developing the kind of chutzpah or the motivation to actually do something about it, and then being given strategies to replace that behavior with something different. And so in the workshop that she and her team have developed, they kind of take people through all of those different phases and are careful to, to balance, on one hand, saying that, you know, unintentional un or unconscious or unexamined bias is something that's very common and you have to be quite vigilant about it because it's so common and we all are susceptible to expressing it. And on the other hand, it's not okay. Like it's, it's normal, but it's also something that we have the responsibility to interrupt. And so they, they take people through these stages while also kind of continual, continually reinforcing that it's both normal and also that you have the kind of the power and the responsibility to, to do something different. Yeah. Well, and we need approaches like this. I mean, I recognize the reason that you wrote this book in part is because, you know, DEI initiatives and a lot of our efforts to quote unquote solve this problem of implicit bias is doesn't work, right? Like most of these initiatives not only fail, but can actually have deleterious or negative effects. Well, one of the big one of the big challenges is that a lot of the approaches that have been designed to kind of interrupt bias like in the workplace haven't actually been tested or evaluated. So we don't even necessarily know how they're doing. I mean, frequently, you know, a workplace will bring in a consultant or a workshop to to try to address these issues, but they won't necessarily set like goals or some sort of target for even seeing whether it's it's making a difference toward those goals. So they, they could be making things better. They could be making things worse. They could be having no effect. In a lot of cases, we just don't know, which is which is a real problem. I mean, there's a psychologist whose work I think is fantastic um, named Betsy Levy-Palak at Princeton. And she has really come out strongly saying that any anti-prejudice intervention needs to be evaluated on the level of a medical intervention. Like the stakes are so high and the consequences are so serious that if we just kind of sprinkle these around without actually knowing what they're doing, it can be really dangerous. Yeah. And a lot of DEI efforts, while noble, but to increase diversity, be inclusive, sort of rewrite standards of companies so that the workforce resembles the world around us, like as well-intended as those often are, without actual work of understanding why or integrating opinions or changing culture it ends up becoming sort of like an armor, right? An armor against criticism. And yet, like it's Teflon, like nothing sticks. It doesn't, it doesn't stay and mm -hmm. cultures don't necessarily change. Again, I'm sure the data is lacking, but it feels like that seems to be just anecdotally from talking to people, it seems to be the case. Mm -hmm. No one wants to fill a quota, right? They want to be valued. They want to be seen. They want to be included. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, when I was doing the research, I found that the companies that had the most success in actually making a real difference in terms of inclusion and diversity were companies that understood that a diverse company is a, was essential to the functioning and future of the organization. You know, it wasn't like a something that they were doing because, you know, to, to, to check sort of a legal checkbox or even because they felt like it was something that was like nice to do, but it was something that they, they felt was actually core to the, their functioning and their future and that they really needed those diverse perspectives and skills and opinions and backgrounds in order to function. And so I think, you know, if organizations haven't made that step, haven't, have, haven't really understood that as part of their future and part of their success, then some of these efforts become kind of, 
you know, almost cosmetic efforts or kind of band-aid efforts that don't actually result in real change, like you said. Yeah. And part of it seems to be this acknowledgement. I don't remember this person who quote Cox's first name, but we can't change people's values, but we can give people knowledge about how they might not be living up to their values. Once you have this information, you can't help but make an effort, right? So it's also why it's so critical for people to actually understand the ways in which they're maybe exhibiting biased behavior, as we all do, but more as a gap between who we say we are and how we're actually showing up in the world. And it seems like if people aren't really actually ready to grapple with that, change is hard. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, values that kind of values affirmation exercises can be helpful too. Like one, one intervention that I just find so fascinating and powerful was a school-based intervention done by a psychologist named Jason Okanofua. And he had this really important insight, which is that there are ways to interrupt bias that don't rely on actually changing people's biases, but instead target people's goals and values, kind of allow those to supersede their biased behavior. So Okanofua was is very concerned as an education disparities researcher in disparate rates of suspension of African-American and Latino students in schools. And so he was trying to figure out how to reduce the disparities in suspension. And he developed this really interesting approach. So he recruited middle school math teachers and he told the math teachers that they were going to be participating in a workshop and training to basically review common common sense best practices in teaching. But what he was actually doing was bringing the teachers through kind of a learning journey and having them recommit to their values of empathy and respect and avoiding labeling students. And he he had teachers do things like read students' perspectives of times when they felt really respected by a teacher. And he had them do things like reflect on ways that they would try to promote respect between themselves and students and express empathy towards students and really try to think about students' perspectives when they were misbehaving. And so he was really kind of, he wasn't actually addressing teachers' biases at all. He didn't even talk about biases, but instead he talked about things like respect and empathy and trust and understanding and really tried to kind of build those up. And what he found was that over the following year, suspensions were cut in half and suspensions of Black and Latino students in particular dropped precipitously. Students also said they felt more respected by teachers at the end of this intervention. And so I thought that was just such an interesting approach because he wasn't he wasn't telling teachers that they were biased and they needed to change their biases. He was telling them, look, you care about students. You, you want to have respectful, trusting relationships with students. You want to build really positive environments, and this is how you can do it. And that allowed teachers to kind of override, in a sense, their the biases that they might have been expressing otherwise. Yeah. And I loved it was him as well, where he did that uh, experiment with probation and parole officers. Yes. That led to a reduction in recidivism. They were shown, officers were shown the inconsistency of viewing themselves as individuals within their group of officers while seeing parolees as indistinct from one another. So I loved that too, just that breaking apart these groups is often enough for people to start to see individual differences. And that in of itself requires more thinking, right? Like that breaks the habit of grouping and automatically applying stereotypical points of view. Yes. One one of the most powerful approaches to reducing bias is to increase the complexity with which we see other groups. So we all yeah. have this tendency toward outgroup homogeneity, which is kind of a, a technical term meaning that when we don't belong to a group, we tend to see that group as being kind of sim all, all the members as being somewhat similar to one another. But we see our own group as really diverse and complex. So all different different approaches that can help us 
that can help make us see that other group as just as complex as our own group is really helpful because it's a lot harder to stereotype a group if you see that group as actually all made up of members who are all very different from one another, which is, of course, the truth. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1,500 square foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetle oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. I loved that poster project. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was stunningly obvious and brilliant. I love the poster project too. I'm <laughs> glad you brought it up. So this was this was a really interesting intervention done in France by a a French researcher of North African origin and an American researcher. And they were looking specifically at anti-Arab prejudice in France. France is a country that that struggles a lot with anti-Arab prejudice. So they were trying to see whether representing people of Arab origin in different ways might decrease the bias against them. And so they developed an approach where they, they created a poster And on the poster, there were images of all of these different people of Arab origin with, there was a photo and then a name and then some kind of description of that person. So it might say, you know, Yamina, age 32, optimistic, or Anila, age 55, stingy. And there was a combination of positive and negative traits, like happy, generous, outgoing. And then there were things like, you know, critical, rude, you know, things that were like more negative. And what they found was that when they put these posters up in different places, like physical therapy offices and schools and universities, showing people of Arab origin who were very different from from one another. And then after people were exposed to the poster for a while, they went back to those those locations And they tested to see whether people were going to behave differently toward people of Arab origin. So for instance, in the physical therapy office, they brought in a confederate of the researchers who was a person of Arab origin and had them sit in the waiting room. And then they measured how near or far patients were sitting compared to that person. It's it's called a seating distance evaluation. They did an evaluation where they had someone of Arab origin drop a bag and spill like the contents of her purse all over the floor. And then they measured to see whether the people who had seen this poster would help her pick up her things or not. 
And what they found was that exposure to the poster made a really big difference. It made people treat people of Arab origin significantly more humanely, more fairly, more kindly, and that that poster had a much bigger impact than a poster that showed the same folks, but all with positive characteristics. Right. So kind of the, you know, the takeaway is that what's actually important is not seeing a group necessarily as all fabulous, wonderful people, because that's not reality, but seeing that group as just as complex, just as diverse, just as different from one another as one's own group. Right. No, I loved it. And I loved the fact that they also tested sort of the complete positive assignations, because you can, even when you hear that, you sort of buck against that, like, stop trying to completely change my opinion or gaslight me about the reality of of humanity, which is that people are nuanced and ranged along the spectrum of behaviors and or that we're all capable of being wonderful and terrible often in the same day. So I love that. And I, not to keep putting you on the spot, but there were so many amazing stories. Can we, can you talk about sort of these, because the solutions that are systems-based, right, where there's just a massive change to how things are done are in many ways thrilling because then we're less reliant. Not that we don't all need to do this deep personal work, but then we're, as we start to engineer systems to get bias out of them, there's, it's just more efficient, obviously. Can you talk about the gifted school program and how that changed so dramatically demographically once they started testing all kids for mm-hmm. giftedness rather than selecting those that they perceived to be gifted who were unsurprisingly predominantly male and white? Mm-hmm. And wealthy. Yes. And rich. Yes. 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 So in... Broward County, Florida, this is in the early 2000s, there was a a school staff, a a staff administrator for the Broward County schools who took a look at the data and saw something that really alarmed her about the gifted and talented programs. Particularly, she saw that the vast majority of students who'd been designated gifted and talented lived in the wealthiest parts of the county and were predominantly white and white and wealthy students. There were schools in predominantly lower income and black and brown neighborhoods where there were no gifted identified students at all. And this was really alarming to her because she had been a gifted gifted educator herself and understood that some students really need particular kinds of attention in order to in order to thrive, in order to do well in school, in order to move forward with their lives. And she was really worried that there were a lot of kids that were not getting identified properly. So at that time, the way students would be identified as quote unquote gifted was through being referred to a school psychologist by either a parent or a teacher. So the process depended on someone in that student's life looking at that student and saying, you know what, I think we're going to tap you on the shoulder. We're going to see if you you might fit into this program. And so what this administrator persuaded the county to do was instead of relying on that kind of adult judgment to instead screen all the children, every single child in the entire school district. I think it was, I can't remember if it was second grade or fourth grade, I think second grade. So they undertook this massive project to screen every single child And this was a massive undertaking. They had to hire a ton of extra staff. They had to hand deliver notes in multiple languages to parents to explain to parents what was going on with their children. But what they found was that after they instituted universal screening, the number of Black and Hispanic kids who qualified as gifted tripled. And of the hundreds of additional kids who qualified over the next year, 80% were low income or from English language learning backgrounds. And what they also found was that a lot of these kids actually had scores on the screening exam that were significantly above the cutoff. So they were, you know, considered highly gifted and they had not been identified. And so what this, you know, what this approach really uncovered, I think, is that it wasn't that these kids weren't, you know, capable or, you know, had what they needed to to be in these programs, but no one had identified them. No one had thought 
to find out if they had or not. But the other thing, you know, there one thing that's kind of interesting about a lot of these interventions is that sometimes they have like unintended consequences also. And so one of the unintended consequences of this intervention is that not only were more Black and Hispanic kids and low-income and ELL kids identified as gifted, but more white kids were identified as special ed. And Mm -hmm. the entire distribution of the scores shifted because before white or wealthier kids were being under-evaluated for special ed status. And they were overrepresented in the gifted program compared to other kids. So no one was winning. Yes. Absolutely. And I think, too, girls started. It actually, girls usurped boys, right, in the gifted program. Yes. Let's be honest. Not surprising. Girls have been outperforming boys in school for, for centuries. And I love that intervention. And in part just because it it's so important for kids right i mean there's i use you cite i don't expect you to go to anything specific you cite research throughout the book but just being told that you have something special is an, an incredible boost for kids right like that mm-hmm. has real impact in how they just being identified or bolstered in any way can dramatically impact their lives yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, yes, there is a famous study from the 60s that looked at classrooms where teachers teachers were told that some students were high achieving students and other students were not labeled as high achieving students. In reality, it was just the labels were random. So there was no difference between these students. But the students who'd been labeled high achieving later scored higher on standardized tests. And the thinking is that because you know the students and the teachers thought that there was something special about these students they actually lived into that and actually like flourished more so yeah to your point i mean labels are powerful and on in the reverse right because then you also talk about those stunning studies with kids where they just assign well either they they reinforce gender aggressively and are constantly reminding children that they're a girl or a boy and that has negative effects or they assign them to completely arbitrary blue shirt, yellow shirt groups and then watch Lord of the Flies unfold. Like it has, I mean, kids are a fascinating test case for how these things start to infiltrate and infect our minds, right? Mm-hmm. And that was simply like they just start behaving in aggressive and biased and not kind ways towards groups that they perceive or are told, more importantly, are told are inferior. Is that sort of the nut of that particular? Yeah, I mean, that was, I think you're talking about the research by Becky Bigler, who's a child developmental psychologist who is really trying to understand how prejudice emerges in children. Mm-hmm. And the she did a whole sort of program of research where she she worked in schools with young kids and manipulated the environment that they were in in different ways to see what effect it would have on their gender stereotyping or other kinds of stereotyping, which, I mean, we could have a whole conversation about it's like the ethics of not that. ethical, but uh, yeah. <laughs> and she did run into ethics issues with, okay. with you know, with her work, but it, it she revealed really interesting things. I mean, some, some of the most kind of powerful work she did looked at the effect of labeling groups. And so she would do things like she would go into a school and she would have one class set of classrooms with one set of classrooms. She would have the teachers constantly label the students like, hello, boys and girls, girls line up over here, boys line up over here. She would separate them by gender. She would have all of the girls artwork put up on one bulletin board and boys artwork put up on another bulletin board. And that would be like one set of classrooms. And then the other set of classrooms, she would have teachers just act normal, not not label the students particularly. And in a whole you know series of, of studies she did about labeling, she found that this labeling itself, kind of reinforcing the categories that children belong to, increases stereotyping tremendously and increases the kind of discriminatory way that they behave toward one another. So it raises some really interesting questions, right, about like how we should interact as a society. Her work suggests that the more we 
reinforce the categories that we belong to, the more sort of stereotyping and discrimination results. On the other yeah. hand, like we live in a world where there are categories and we can't ignore them. I mean, that, that has its own negative consequences. So this is, I mean, this is a real tension, I think, in yeah. dealing with these issues. It's a tension that, that I ran into a lot. No, of course. And that goes to this idea of people who are like, I'm colorblind. And you're like, well, that's insane. Like the whole point is that we're different and we need to explore those differences and that it's the attachment of value to those differences that informs our behavior, i.e. this is better than that, or this is that, etc. I think it was divine. She said, you write, trying to deny these differences, divine asserts, makes discrimination worse. Perceiving distinctions is something humans naturally do. Humans, after all, see age and gender and skin color. That's vision. Humans have associations about these categories. That's culture. Using these associations to then make judgments about an individual, that, Divine believes, is habit. It's not seeing difference that matters. It's reacting to difference in harmful ways. I thought that was such a beautiful distillation of, and yet people get so allergic to the conversation that they trip, right, at the first point and then deny and pretend like they are what, like have a different set of eyes? Right. Yeah. I mean, the idea that we're colorblind or, or gender blind or age blind or something is, is ridiculous. I mean, we categorize those things within milliseconds when right. we see one another. It's part of our, you know, our development of our visual <laughs> processing and our social, our social development. But it's a deep and, and challenging problem, like how we create space between the categorization of one another and the evaluation of one another. Mm -hmm. I think creating that space is what allows us to open the door to a new way of interacting in a more humane way. Yeah, no, certainly. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally. Visit www.sleep.me/thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. I want to talk about police and, and Watts, but really quickly, the end of the book, when you explore the changing of norms and standards and how, can we talk about that quickly? Because it's obviously sort of the world that we're living in, in a dramatic way. You use not incredibly charged examples of how when we perceive that other people think that doing something is right or normal, we're much more inclined to do it. And that obviously has negative 
con- there are negative examples of that all over the place culturally, but you talk about it in the context of like reusing towels in hotels, right? Can you talk a little bit about norms and then how that either enforces our bias or disrupts it? Absolutely. I think social norms are one of the most powerful ways of influencing human behavior. And we see it happening all the time. So so the idea of social norms is that we are tremendously influenced by what we see other people doing and what we believe to be popular among others. So if we think that a particular action is really common and that the most popular people are doing it, we're much more likely to do it. This has been shown in like countless studies, like the hotel room studies. So there were, were studies that looked at whether people would be willing to forego having their towels washed very regularly. And they had, in in some of the hotel rooms, they put placards. I think it's like 75% of hotel guests choose to reuse their towels to save the environment versus reusing your towels is really important for the environment. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so some of the some of the guests saw a placard that said, you know, we want you to reuse your towel because it's important for the environment. Others saw a sign that said a placard that said the majority of hotel guests reuse their towels. And the ones who saw the placard that said a majority of other guests are doing this were much more likely to do it. Similarly, there was research about that took place in the the petrified forest, the petrified national forest that looked at whether people would be what what might persuade people to not take pieces of petrified wood from the forest. Some people were told that it was important to preserve the sanctity of the forest and so you shouldn't you shouldn't steal from the forest and others were told that many people steal from the forest and and it's really bad that they do that and the visitors who were told that a lot of people do this bad thing were more likely to do the bad thing themselves. So even if you're told something is bad, if you think a lot of other people are doing it, you're more likely to do it. And, you know, I think honestly, during the lead up to the 2016 election, when I saw newspapers and networks show these enormous rallies that Trump was holding, I knew in that moment that they were creating social norms and they were through showing these visuals of Trump at a huge rally with lots and lots of supporters. They were creating the perception that supporting Trump is a popular and normal thing to do. And I think Mm -hmm. that the, I think often the media doesn't even realize their role in the creation of social norms, but it's incredibly important because it influences people's behavior profoundly. No, certainly. I think so many people took sort of heart in that or suddenly, and we saw this obviously, like, I don't know if we've ever seen social norms shift as much as they have in the last six years. I can't believe that we're having conversations about normalize, how normal white supremacy is or these, that Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and that these, it's so wild. This is something that we would have culturally rejected with so much aggression 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow it's becoming normalized. It's it's staggering. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why it's so important to speak up at every opportunity and interrupt the social norm. I mean, people might think, well, how much of a difference is it going to make if I'm in a group of people and everyone's talking about something that I that I think is wrong? Like, does it really matter for me to speak up? And my perspective, having done this research, is like, yes, it's really important to speak up because you're interrupting the idea that it's normal and you're interrupting the idea that that particular point of view is popular. And in doing so, you know, it, it has a huge ripple effect. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think by saying nothing, we are condoning things that we find absolutely reprehensible and staggering. So, no, I'm I'm with you. I do want to talk about the cops and the interruption or or the program the programming in Watts. In part because I feel like you did an incredible job of humanizing a group of people who have certainly been turned into a group and vilified for understandable reasons, but teasing out 
sort of what's happening. And, and I mean, there are some staggering statistics that I didn't know, like the fact that more cops die by suicide than die on the job, just sort of the incredible mental health crisis happening and the compounding trauma of the reality of their lives. And then, of course, that's projected onto people who they profess to protect and serve. So can we can we go into that community intervention? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of I spent a lot of time with police officers because I was trying to figure out if it's possible to change their behavior. My question was, are there approaches that actually cause police to behave in ways that are more just and fair and respectful and life affirming toward their communities? So in order to do that, I had to really understand what is going on in their minds and hearts when they're on the job. And what I found, you know, through spending a lot of time with them and through a lot of the peer-reviewed studies is that, you know, many of the people that we have out in our community purportedly protecting and serving are extremely impaired humans. Through their through their work, through their jobs, they experience chronic stress. They experience toxic work environments. They're frequently have serious sleep problems, anger problems, aggression problems. Many of them are quite impaired humans. And so, you know, the question is like, how do you, how do you fix that? Is that, is that even something that's fixable? Because even people who began, I mean, many officers who I talked to said, even, you know, people who began with like good intentions. And of course we know that there are police officers who go into the field because they want to protect people. They want to help with domestic violence. They want to protect the communities that they come from in some cases. Even many of those officers over the years become quite hardened and kind of dehumanized by the work that they do. And so there are a couple of approaches that I found to be promising. I mean, the question, of course, is do we have the political will to actually put these into place. But one approach that I found really persuasive is an approach that was developed by Connie Rice, who is a civil rights lawyer in Los Angeles. She'd spent a couple of decades, actually about 15 years, suing the LAPD for discrimination and for abuse. And at one point along the way, she realized that if she really wanted to change the behavior of people in the LAPD, she would have to go inside the organization. You know, she was filing lawsuit after lawsuit, and it wasn't really making a dent in behavior. And so it's a long story, but the gist of it is that she developed a, a program called the Community Safety Partnership because, and, and the idea behind the program was that police officers were afraid of the people they were serving in some cases, or they stereotyped them. They stereotyped entire neighborhoods as being perpetrators and victims. And in order to disrupt that stereotyping and that fear, officers needed to actually know the people that they were serving. And so she, she developed this program called the Community Safety Partnership in which officers were given different incentives. And I think this is really key. So she was given permission to start a small program. And when she was training these officers, she said, you are no longer going to be rewarded for making arrests. You're going to be rewarded for building relationships. And you're going to be promoted on the basis of whether you can show that you've created trusting relationships with people in the community. And so this was like very radical, really, like very kind of countercultural. But she, she started with a small program. They started with four different housing developments in Watts and, and surrounding areas. And long story short, when it was evaluated over the course of 10 years, they found that it had really changed the way officers were treating citizens. Arrests went down, respecting, respectful behavior went up, great, there was greater trust between police and the citizens they were serving. And interestingly, violent crime also went down. So one kind of piece of the puzzle that, that I learned about when I was doing this research is that police behavior itself 
can either dial up or dial down crime. This is work done by Tracy Mears at Yale and colleagues. And what she has found is that when police behave in a disrespectful way toward communities, they are seen as less legitimate. And in turn, the law itself is seen as less legitimate because police are kind of extensions of the law in the eyes of the community. And so conversely, when police behave in fair and respectful and even loving ways toward community members, this can actually have a negative effect on crime. This can actually decrease crime because it increases the legitimacy that the police are perceived as having. And so that is possibly one of the reasons that violent crime went down as a result of this relational program. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetIns.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Are you optimistic in general? Oh, that's such a like, what question, do you think, Like, what do you want people to do? Like, slow down, just acknowledge that they have biases and slow themselves down. Like, what do you want us all... How, how how do you want to see us all evolve? You know, there are two things I think are really important that we haven't even touched on. One is we all need to learn history because research shows that the more you understand the history of discrimination in the past, the more you're able to perceive it in the present. Mm. It's also really important that we see examples of places and times when our t- the toxic patterns that we have today were not present because I think this can give us the courage and the creativity to imagine and to create a time after bias, a time after prejudice. So if we think about, you know, ancient Mesopotamia, one of the oldest images of worship in the world is the Varka vase from 3200 BC. And this is a a tall skinny vase that shows a procession of men offering gifts and offerings to a female deity. The object of worship, the person who was worshiped and revered and adored was female. Over time, that idea that the feminine could be authoritative, you know, that the ultimate sort of arbiter of, of anything could be a woman, you know, got degraded. So you see the figure of Demeter over time becoming Saint Demetra and then becoming Saint Demetrius. So we see the extraction of the feminine from the image of the divine. But if we can remember that there was a time when women were considered divine, you know, when women were considered the ultimate authority, I think that, you know, that's one example that can, from history, that can sort of give us the the courage to understand and to really grasp that these patterns that we have today are not permanent. They're not natural. Not permanent. No, Gerda Lerner sort of posits, obviously it's an evolving number, but 3100 BC. So a hundred years after that is the beginning of what we start to, to know is patriarchy. Yes. Well. Yeah. And I mean, there are other cultures, like if you look at the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Iroquois Confederacy, you see in 1200 to 1800, women having incredible political power, women being able to choose chiefs and depose chiefs and mete out capital punishment and control food resources. And so I think, you know, when we expand our imagination to see that the patterns that we live with are culturally and historically contingent, I think that's incredibly powerful. So that's one thing I would say, history, learn history, really absorb history. I think the other thing that I that I would want people to understand is that we think about expressing bias as something that harms other people and that we shouldn't do it because 
it harms others, particularly those of us who are in the majority or are in privileged positions. We, we think, oh, well, we need to work on our biases because it's, it's good for other people. And I think the other, you know, the other sort of big transformation that I went through in, in working on this book was, was understanding that my biases also harm me. And this isn't something that I only do for the benefit of others. It's also something I do for the benefit of myself. Because when I hold biases, when I see others through this like daydream or hallucination, this kind of veil, that cuts me off from other people. It isolates me. It makes it harder to have trusting relationships and meaningful, deep connections to other people. And that harms me too. So I think you know, I, I think sometimes the work of, of anti-bias or, or justice work can almost take on kind of like a savioristic sort of flavor. And I think the way out of saviorism is understanding that we are all harmed by this and we all benefit from, from tackling these problems. If you read, I know there are many offerings out there. But if you read one book about bias, along with Jennifer Eberhardt's book, Biased, which came out a few years ago, she's incredible. That's primarily about racialized bias. It's a really important work. She's an incredible researcher. But Jessica Nordell just really pulls together the entire spectrum and world. And, and that final point that she makes about how bias harms all of us, I hope that you got that sense from our conversation, that it lives in our children, it lives in our ideas about gender, particularly when it comes to people who identify as women. It certainly affects marginalized groups and people who are in racial minorities across the globe. And more importantly, it goes back to that quote that I mentioned, which is that I don't think that it is within any of our value systems to want to treat people badly or unfairly or to stereotype. I don't think that that's who we are. It's just the autopilot, the efficiency with which we run, which is completely human and understandable. But it's on all of us to bring mindfulness and override that impulse to continue to see each other as individuals and not part of groups, monogroups with collective identities. And that's really our job. And I know that there's so much shame about it. We all have so much anxiety about being labeled as a bad person or a biased person. And, and people are tired. I, I get that. People are fatigued. But I think we're being called to bridge that gap in our values between who we know ourselves to be and how we're showing up in the world. All right. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter. I promise I won't spam you. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends who you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next Student Visionaries of the Year. Could that be your child? 
High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students.